Nice to be here. My name is Subodh Pandit from India. Grew up there, born, brought up there. India is a very diverse country. Philosophy, religion, culture. And growing up there gives you a perspective and a perspective that really challenges you, challenged me. One of the questions I had was, in this pluralistic society where I grew up, how do you find your way through? Would it make sense to be able to evaluate the different claims that come to you very strongly? I searched for answers for more than 20 years. Grew up as a Christian in a very anti-Christian environment. So naturally I had questions. I'm going to present to you this evening one topic of the struggle. It was not the first. My first topic that really confronted me was how do I make a decision between Hinduism and Islam and Buddhism and Christianity and Judaism and the others too, Jainism, Sikhism, Zoroastrianism, you name it. Then as I grappled with that, I realized that there was an earlier question because these claims tried to show that there was something supernatural. What, what if there was not anything supernatural? Then what's the use of looking for all the names? So my first question had to be, how can a rational, thinking, scientific mind accept the existence of something beyond what we can see, beyond the natural? So is there something supernatural? Um, we're not ready with this. So I'll just go ahead and tell you what there is, was on these slides. Um, the first question for any group like this is to recognize that this is a huge, complex question. It is not what you would have for breakfast, either this cereal or that. This is something that is huge. It is mutually exclusive. The question is, is there a God in existence? There are only two answers, yes or no. You can't have 50% of this and 50% of that. Yes or no. It is huge. It is also all-encompassing. Our whole existence, including our Earth and all that we understand of the planetary systems, of the galaxies, the universe. Either there is a God in this universe or there is no God in this universe. Those are the two questions. If you say that there is a God, you can't step onto the other side and say, well, 50% is there too. It's mutually exclusive. If you are a theist, a person who says there is a God, then you cannot be an atheist. And if you are an atheist who says that there is no God, then you cannot be a theist. So that, there is a dividing line. The question is, if you are rational, which way would it go? If you are thinker, if you want to place it on a basis where your mind will be satisfied, 
how shall we deal with it? Because it is so big, we must lay down certain ground rules, and we're going to do that. We're going to take a few minutes tonight, not very, very long, but the ground rules are extremely important. Number one ground rule, you and I have the freedom to choose whatever we want to believe as the truth of the matter. You and I, I'm repeating, have the freedom to choose what we want to believe to be the truth of the matter, whether there is good evidence, whether there is no evidence, and when there is even evidence to the contrary, you are free to choose, and everybody uses that freedom to choose. So don't be afraid of making a choice. It's yours. And you can choose when there's no evidence, you can choose when there's evidence to the contrary, that's yours, totally yours, because it's a personal thing, a, a belief is personal. Once it is that personal, we have to ask ourselves, just because I believe it, does it make it the truth? No, it does not. Because somebody else can believe something, it, something else exactly and diametrically opposite. So it cannot be that my belief is the truth. So when you come to a corporate body like us, a group, then we cannot say that my personal choice must hold sway. I give it up and say let's do a corporate search, a community search, and in that community search we must lay ground rules. The ground rules that we will set for this few minutes that we're going to spend tonight we're going to look for things that are, have evidence, that are reasonable, logical. Evidence, reason, logic. Not mere opinion, not illogic, not absurdity. That is what we set as ground rules. Why do we have this setting of the ground rules? It's because the debate has been going on for decades and generations and centuries. It, is an, it appears to be completely unending. There's no end in sight. There's people who always keep on saying, hey, there is a God and there's equally a strong voice from the other side saying, no, there isn't, you're out of your mind. So when there, is, when there are these two forces going on for centuries, I asked, why is it going on for centuries? Why can't we come to some kind of a consensus? Let's all agree to one. There are four reasons I found why this debate will always be inconclusive. Number one, we have not yet defined the terms. Do you know that we have not yet defined what is the meaning of God to the satisfaction of both the sides? No, we have not. Number two, we have not decided what is the meaning of evidence. What is the nature of evidence? 
for or against this side or that side. Nobody has settled that. If you don't settle these two things, your debate must go on forever. And I've asked so many, and I've been doing this for, you know, eight years now. My, my speeches are usually on secular university campuses. Uh, that's my ministry. I, I, that's where I go and speak. So when I ask them, can you give me the nature of the evidence that you want to look for when you say, I'd like to have an evidence for the existence of God? Complete silence. Nobody has yet as far as I know, settled out what that evidence is or should be. Number three, we are not neutral at all. We are either on one side or the other. I have yet to meet somebody who is absolutely neutral and say, Let, let's look at it in a neutral way. You always find a person coming at it from either one angle or the other, either from theism or from atheism. Nobody dares to stand in the middle because they are scared the other side will win. Everyone included, you and me too. We do not want to stand in the middle. We have made up our minds. Why? Because of confirmation bias. What's confirmation bias? The tendency to look for the evidences and to weigh the evidences out so that our pre-existing beliefs are settled. That is confirmation bias. And we all have confirmation bias. Nobody escapes it. So what do we do about confirmation bias? Number one, acknowledge and confess it's there. Because if you don't confess, you're going to hold on to it. If you confess, you might be able to put it aside a little bit, at least a little bit, so it gives you a chance. Why do we have confirmation bias? Because, once again, a universal observation. Each of us have in our minds three attitudes. When it comes to any report that comes, whether and I'm talking about any report, whether it's about food, whether it's about your friend, whether it's about school, whether it's about religion, anything. When a report comes to you and me, we have three attitudes. The attitude of a believer who accepts the report without much noise. The attitude of a skeptic who just dismisses it without thorough investigation. The attitude of an inquirer who holds and says, hey, what are you saying? Let me check it out. We have all three, and sometimes we don't know which one we are bringing to the table at any particular time. We believe we are very balanced and very, you know, fair, but we are not. We are usually either a believer or a skeptic. We are very rarely an inquirer. Now, a believer also inquires. But he is a believing inquirer. So because of his confirmation bias, all he will get is his side. And you can be a skeptical inquirer, and you think you're all fine, but your confirmation bias will take all the evidence and drag it out this side, and you will remain a skeptic. What we have to do is to become inquiring inquirers. So, for these few minutes. What shall we be? Skeptics 
believers or inquirers? Inquirers. All right. If you are going to be an inquirer, here are three characteristics. They are the toughest that you will ever face in your life. Becoming an inquirer is the toughest thing in life. Number one, when you look at an option that comes to you, never deal pros and cons of that option. Always make a counter-proposal. An inquirer makes a setting. There must be a context to your search or to your evaluation. In science, we call it the null hypothesis and the alternative hypothesis. Why do we have these two? To set it into a context. A context is very important. So an inquirer, whenever a report comes to him on a controversial topic like what we're doing tonight, always make a counter-proposal. How often I have heard a person comes up to another and says, tell me, why do you say there's a God in existence? So this guy has to now uh, drum up all his uh, evidences and all his arguments. But that is not the first step in an inquirer. The first step is, okay, if there's a question of why I should say there's a God, there should be also a counter-proposal and tell me why there, do you say there is no God in existence. Did you get it? Don't start arguing on one point. An inquirer always has two, the proposal and the counter-proposal. So, so we come to the second quality of the inquirer. When he has two, he stands in the middle. You become neutral. Can you see how hard it is? Yep. So we pretend to be inquirers. But we really are not, because to become an inquirer, you must have two options, and you stand right in the middle of those two options, neutral. And the third characteristic is the toughest. You stand in the middle, look at these two options, and you tell yourself, either option will be acceptable to you, honestly acceptable, as long as it's based on evidence, reason, and logic. Either option will be okay to you. And believe me, I have not yet found an inquirer not even looking into the mirror. It is so hard. Nobody likes to become an inquirer. We like to pretend that we are inquiring, but we don't like to inquire. We like the evidences and the arguments to, to be on our side. But believe me, if you want to go to the big topics like this, we really have no option but to become inquirers. Because the paramount question I'm going to ask you is, do you want to win the argument or do you want to know the truth of the matter? If you want to win an argument, I'm giving it to you right now. Go ahead to your places of staying and you've, you've won the argument. Go ahead and win it. What is the use of winning an argument on the wrong side. Are you with me? 
an inquirer cares two hoots who wins the argument. He wants to know the truth of the matter. You can win. Alright? So, we are all going to become inquirers. Tough. Take up the challenge. It took me a long time. I realized that if I had to make an honest inquiry, I had to become an inquirer. It took me months to even make up my mind to become an inquirer because it is frightening. You don't know which way it's going to go. But, no, I can't say I was 100% an inquirer. I'm a human. I have my own biases. But I knew this and I had to make a deliberate choice. So I'm asking you to make a deliberate choice. It may not be in two minutes. Go home and make it. This will not only be in the topic for tonight, be a topic your whole life. Do you want to win an argument or do you want to know the truth of the matter? At every situation, my friends, look for the truth of the matter. You will not, you will not ever regret for that. No use winning an argument on the wrong side. So, if you are going to become an inquirer, how long does a person who decides to become an inquirer stay an inquirer? Because you have to stay the whole search through, right? It's no use become an inquirer for, for today and then <laughs> go back to your old ways before, in, in the next day. How long do you think an inquirer stays an inquirer after he makes up his mind to become an inquirer? You know how, what my guess is? Two minutes, give or, give or take a few seconds. Yeah. Now I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about myself too. You cannot stay an inquirer. We are just ingrained to go to our own side. So I decided this won't do. <laughs> Even after becoming and making a big show of how much an inquirer I was going to be, I was going sliding down in two minutes back to my old ways. So I decided deliberately, remember it took me months, to have an atmosphere. Create an atmosphere which will give you the best chance. There's no guarantees. It'll just give you the best chance. And you need four things to create the atmosphere. Number one, humility. It is absolutely number one. If you do not Accept humility as your number one foundation. You cannot even start an inquiry. Humility is the foundation. What's humility? A teachable spirit. When you look at somebody who says something that you didn't know, don't say, oh, I also knew it. No, no, you didn't know it. Just say, yeah, man, I was dumb on that. So you become humble. Because truth out there is so huge. It is so grand. It is so great that what you know is closer to zero than what there is out there. So be humble. Number two, honesty. You know, I'm a physician and some of us I guess are medical institution, so we know what I'm talking about. There's a condition which 
takes one takes you one step below you know good nutrition it'll be undernutrition right undernourished but below that undernourishment is starvation in the question of honesty we are starved i'm not talking about just ordinary people and i've talked to lots of ordinary people it took me 20 years to do the search i'm talking about even those people who are supposed to be leaders the bishops the preachers the mullahs the imams the priests the monks boy the dishonesty there is i mean it is an absolute short supply you got to you got to just dig around to find a little bit of honesty nobody likes to be seen as a little ignorant so the moment you ask a question they will start off yeah i'll, I'll tell you buddy and at the end of the day do you really know what you're talking about and then when it's all over they'll say man i really didn't know it is so much in short supply that when i found it here there my first question is it found here <laughs> and it was there too i was as dishonest as anybody else so i had to tell myself man alive if it is that rampant it's kind of endemic not just epidemic then i got to do something about it and what i did was make a definition of honesty that i would hold on to and the definition is this honesty is the willingness to give credit to a point or an argument no matter who brings it to the table and even if my confession will destroy my own previous standing i will give credit so if somebody brings up a good point i will say good i will not first ask oh if i say good <laughs> he'll get the point not me no if it is good say good if it is not so good say not so good i call it the wow factor wow boy that is a good point you made yeah man that's impressive how hard is it to say it my friend when you really see it it's impressive say it and become honest humility honesty these two if we don't have it's all done for number 3 calmness belief is deep within our souls nobody can touch it nobody has the key to that belief except you that's why we said in the beginning it's your choice just around your belief are your emotions nobody can touch your belief without piercing your emotions and boy do we rise up when we our emotions are touched ah oh, don't talk to me that way buddy you know we just rise up and sometimes you're all calm and you know well dressed and with a little hmm. but let somebody just knock you rub you the wrong way about your god and see what you'll do we are so ready to rise up and defend what we believe calmness should be in line with humility and honesty 
if you're humble, you have nothing to really gripe about. You got, you're just learning. So keep your emotions down because emotions and judgment are not compatible. Anger and reasoning cannot be on the same table. So we have to choose. Choose to remain calm. Don't rise up and, you know, when I say this out there, when I go to these universities, secular universities, there are a lot of atheists and agnostics and secular-minded and humanists and all that sitting there. And I tell them, look, look, <laughs> I'm going to say something that will jar you up. Don't get angry. <laughs> what you do is this. I'll give you a, my arguments. And what you've got to say is, all right, I hear you. Let me break down your arguments by calm and collected reasoning and evidence. Not by anger. Is that okay? With us? Yeah. I might say something that may jar you. I don't know. So, four is respect. Once again, very badly in, in, in short supply. Respect. Let's do to no go up up again here um, here yeah. yep okay. there. there we are here we go square. so we got square. yeah thank you. <laughs> So here we've got four, humility, honesty, calmness, respect. Once again, this does not relate only to the topic at hand. Believe me, if you use these four, you can tackle any controversial topic in the world and still come out friends. Yes, I've seen it. Just use these four. Humility, honesty, calmness, respect. And you can tackle any horrible topic in the world and still come out as friends and calm. So with that, I said one of the reasons we, this, you know, this debate has been going on is because we don't become neutral. When you're not neutral, you will have only two columns of argument, mine and yours. And I will pile up evidence on my side and shoot yours down. So there are only two columns of argument. When you are not neutral. If you are neutral and an inquirer, I developed what I call the pan process. Pan is going across. Pan American games. Pan American airlines. Pan is also sift. You pan for gold like those 49ers did. They pan for gold at Sutter's Mill. You separate the mundane from the valuable, panning. Pan also is the first three letters of my family name, Pandit. <laughs> so, pan process. <laughs> the pan process requires four columns of argument. 
because you have two options. So you do pros and cons for both. In other words, what you do when you have two options and you are an honest inquirer, you fight for both and you also fight against both. Are you with me? Then you have told yourself and convinced yourself and in good reason that you are an inquirer. So here is the pan process. Column one will be arguments for A. A is atheism. Two will be arguments against B, believer. Number three will be arguments for the believer who says there's a God in existence. And number four will be arguments against A, which is atheism. Column one. Are we ready to do the, the pan process? Are we ready to do the pan process? At least we'll tell ourselves that we are inquirers. And we want it to be on one side. I can see it on your faces. But let's see what happens if we, are, if we can come to the middle end and, and address this this way. So let's take a half a minute break. And I don't think, well, that's OK. Let's go on with the pan process. Column one, arguments for atheism. There are no arguments for atheism. Do you know why? Because a statement in the negative, a negative statement is valid only when every possibility has been exhausted. Only then can you make a negative statement. I'll give you a simple example. Suppose there are 10,000 lakes in the United States, and I say there is no lake by the name Chargogagog, Manchaugagog, Chaubanagan, Gamaug. How many lakes should I know? All, right? Even 9,999 won't do. By the way, Chargogagog, Manchaugagog, Chaubanagan, Gamaug is a real name of a real lake. It's in Upper Massachusetts. In the, it's in the Native American language, one of the tribes. And it says, I fish on my side of the lake, and you fish on your side, and nobody fishes in between. <laughs> it's the longest name in the United States. So I just throw it out for trivia, so that you won't go to sleep. Because I don't have a big booming voice. Anyway. The point is just that, right? Suppose I say there's nobody in this, in this hall by the name Mr. Brown. How many names should I know? Every name. Only then can I make a negative statement and say that there's nobody by the name of Mr. Brown here. Take one, one attribute of God. If there's a God in existence, he's got to be somewhere. If he's in existence, right? He's got to be somewhere. Do you know every corner of the town in which you live? No. How about the county, state? Country, continent, the world, been to the moon? Nah. Dark side of the moon? Suppose he set up office there. How about the sun, 93 million miles away? How many suns are there in our Milky Way galaxy? Take a guess, 200 billion. Been to any of them? Uh-uh. How many galaxies are there? The astronomers have guesstimated. Two hundred billion. That is within our telescopic sight. 
200 billion galaxies of 100 to 200 billion stars each and you haven't been even to the town in which you lived what is the rationale that you can say there's no God in existence number one number two is if I can walk this God also can walk so if I go looking for him in the living room, he could have gone to the dining room, right? Isn't that so simple? If I went looking for him in China, he could have gone to Canada. So for me to really, really say that there is no God, I must know every nook and cranny of the entire universe, and I must know every nook and corner at the same moment in time. What are those characteristics called? Knowing everything at the same time. Omniscience and omnipresence. Those are the attributes of God. So to prove that there is no God, you must have the attributes of God or become a God yourself. And then you can say there is no God. Can you see that there are no arguments? on this column. And you know you would have never come to this conclusion if you hadn't done the pan process. Only if you do the pan process can it come staring at you, hey, there is no argument. Because atheism is not saying anything about itself. It is saying theism is wrong. That's all it's saying. So if somebody says this guy is six foot two, you stand and say, no, he's not six foot two. What have you said about yourself? Nothing. You, all you said is, that guy is not six foot two. See the point? Okay. Column one has no arguments. Column two. Now, if atheism has to win, its only hope is to go across the line and look at the claims of theism and shoot those arguments down then it can win. It's, there's a chance, but it can win only with that. There are four. We're going to look at... Look, for lack of time tonight, we started late and didn't have it all going. So we'll cut some things out, okay? We'll look at only one. The big one, I think, is number three. Right? Pain and suffering. Evil, pain and suffering. That's the huge one. How many of us have suffered? Really all of us. I too. So friends, who are you asking that question to? Who has that question? Everyone. Everyone has that question. And nobody on earth can answer it. Do you know that? You've got to be a god to answer that question. No human can honestly, completely answer that question. However, we can use a little bit of reasoning. So let us say, there's a contradiction here. That's the problem. You are saying God is almighty and loving, and there is evil, pain, and suffering. Loving, almighty, evil, pain, mm, these two are too far apart. There's a, such a severe contradiction. My conclusion is there's no God in existence. That's the argument there, right? Because it's such a bad contradiction. Reasoning 
And we, we're going to be calm now. We're not going to be upset. Reasoning will tell us that a contradiction is not the basis for saying it's non-existent. A contradiction is only a contradiction. What you've got to do is settle the contradiction. Don't try to say that the whole thing is non-existent. So suppose this guy, I'm the police officer, and this fellow says, hey, Mr. A stole my wallet. And Mr. B says, <laughs> Mr. Uh, uh, that's Mr. B. B says A stole the wallet. A says B stole the wallet. And I, as a police officer, say, hey, there's a severe contradiction here. Nobody stole any wallet. Go home. <laughs> no. When there's a contradiction, you solve the contradiction. You don't say there's nothing there. Go home. That's number one. Number two is, if you look at the question of pain and evil and suffering, there's nobody here who will deny that there, it is there. And it's in good measure there. It's in terrible measure there. Now, the question really is, is pain and suffering the only thing in our lives? What's on the opposite spectrum? Joy. All right. So let's be fair then. Remember we are sitting, we're sitting in the middle? Inquirers. If the argument is really strong, that pain and suffering points to the non-existence of God, then joys and pleasures should point to the existence of God. Be fair. Let's not make a one-sided judgment. And so that'll cancel out. In fact, all these four that you see on the screen, all four will cancel out. Because every one of them, you can find something on the other side that knocks it off. So, we've gone to... Two columns. Let's go to the third one. Now we go to the third one. Arguments for the existence of God. There are four. Let's do. We'll quickly just read through anthropic principle and logical analysis. Anthropos. What's the anthropic principle? Anthropos is for human. Factors that contribute and sustain human life on a planet. For example, take the expansion rate of the universe, which is fine-tuned to one part in a trillion, 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 trillion. That is, if it were changed by one part in either direction, a little faster, a little slower, we could not have a universe that would be capable of supporting life. You know what that means? You have these... Uh, suitcases with these combination locks, combination numbers. Usually there are three, right? You've got to have all three right, otherwise it won't open. Suppose you had a combination of all these trillions, and you've got only one chance. You've got to get all these trillion right at the first chance. That's the meaning of that statement. Somehow, of all the possible ways or the rates of expansion, there was only one rate that will allow us to have life on this earth. There was only one rate out of these trillion, 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 trillion. And that was the rate at which it expanded. 
Now, we just mentioned one. The other one is gravity. When I have no time really to go through it, so I just said we are reading through. If the universe had not been made with the most exacting precision, we could never have come into existence. Over the past 30 years or so, scientists have discovered that just about everything about the basic structure of the universe is balanced on a razor's edge for life to exist. The seemingly miraculous concurrence of these numerical values must remain the most compelling evidence for cosmic design. There is something going on behind it all. The impression of design is overwhelming. And if the impression of design is overwhelming, then the impression that a designer is around is equally overwhelming. That's the point. Number two, logical analysis. Mm. Well, let's go through them all. Kalam. This was uh, mentioned by Al-Ghazli. Any change requires a scientific cause. If something was motionless and suddenly began to move, then you've got to go and look for the reason why it started moving. If it was moving very slowly and began to go very fast, then you've got to go and find out why. That's the whole idea of science. If it was going up and then began to come down, then hey, what's the change about? Any change requires a cause. The biggest change is from nothing to something. If anything begins, this is, you know, look at the date, way back then, and it has not been thrown out yet. The universe had a beginning. Whatever begins has to have a cause, therefore the universe has to have a cause. Number two, the pan, same word pan, pan cosmological argument. The cosmos consists of METS, METS, M-E-T-S, matter, energy, time and space. No effect causes itself. You never say that the pointer is the cause of the pointer. You do not say the laptop is the cause of the laptop. No effect explains itself or causes itself. The cause is always distinct from the effect or from matter, energy, time and space. In other words, the cause of this pointer is distinct from the pointer. It was a person who did this. Mets or cosmos is completely natural, and that's everybody acknowledges. Therefore, the cause of that which was completely natural has to be non or supernatural. Analysis, logical analysis number three, the order principle of science. Again, science is orderly, it's predictable, it's reliable. There is a certain order to it, and here's one order. All causes produce effects. If it does not produce an effect, you can't call it a cause. All effects have a cause. The cause precedes the effect. That's the order. You can't have an effect that, <laughs> that precedes the cause. It's the cause that precedes the effect. The first cause, then, for preceded the universe, cosmos, mets. The last part, the logical analysis. A specific corollary of the order principle is the law that one cause can have many effects, but no effect can be quantitatively greater or qualitatively superior to its cause. In other words, if I have to lift up 10 pounds, I must have the strength in my muscle at least of 10 pounds of strength, you know. The cause must be at least equal to what it produces as an effect. That's the statement and it's the order principle of science. So let us look at what there is. Remember, if we have a cause, if we have an effect, 
the cause must be at least equal to the effect. So, what do we have in the universe? We have life. We have thinking, we have matter, energy, time, space, laws of nature. So, according to the order principle of science, if we have this much of life, looking at my life, the cause has to have more life than me because he gave it to me and you, and to the animals, and to the whole of nature. So, the cause must have a pretty good supply of life. If I can think and have an intellect and he endowed that to me, then he must, that cause must be a pretty brainy guy. Because he gave it to all of us, right? How about matter and energy must be pretty powerful too? Because he supplied all the energy in the whole universe. How about time and space? He had to coordinate all the laws of time and space. He must be everywhere. Are you getting it? So the cause must have an abundance of life, it must be a giant intellect to supply all that, it must have a tremendous power to show, and he must have control of all space and time to harmonize all laws everywhere. This is what uh, Albert Einstein said when he talked about the intellect. He says his feelings take the form of rapturous amazement at the harmony of natural law, which reveals an intelligence of such superiority that compared with it, all the systematic thinking and acting of human beings is an utterly insignificant reflection. So, we have agreed by the order principle of science that the cause probably is uncaused and it distinct from the nature, it preceded the universe and it possibly was omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. Makes good sense, reasonable sense by the order principle of science, not by what you say, not by what I say, not by what the Bible says, not what by the Rig Veda says, not by what the Quran says, by simply the order principle of science on which we have used logic and reason. Now column number four, and that's the last column, arguments against atheism. Mm. Yeah, we have a few minutes, is that okay? We're not going through all, we're going to go through at least two of them. We'll go through three and four. We'll start with the form nothing. You see, if God didn't create, then we came, ultimately it was nothing. And I'm not saying this, look at their own words. So, from nothing, our universe begins. So, where did the laws of nature come from? They came from nothing. The void out of which the universe spontaneously arose. That's Victor Stenger in his book, God, the Failed Hypothesis. Bill Bryson was a short history of nearly everything. How about Quentin Smith? He was co-author of the book, Theism, Atheism and the Big Bang Cosmology. And look at his all-encompassing statement. The only reasonable belief is that we came from nothing, by nothing and for nothing. Now, this is the stance. This is the claim. We can laugh at it. Remember, we have to be respectful. So, let's break down the argument rather than laughing at it. There are four ways in which you can look at it. Number one is physical. Can you start with nothing and get anything? Physically, let's try to build a Sears Tower. Chicago, Sears Tower. 
I'm not going to give you any material. I'm not going to give you a builder. I'm not going to give any time. Not going to give any space. I'm not even going to give you yourself. And if you're getting upset at it, and you want to make a complaint to me, then I want to tell you that even I'm not in existent. So now let's go and build the CS Tower. Lo and behold, it's there without anything. Physically, absolute nothingness is physically totally impractical. How about philosophically? You, do you know that absolute nothingness cannot be imagined? Why? Because imagination requires a mind. And if you want to imagine absolute nothingness, you will have to also imagine that your mind is not in existence. And you cannot do that while you are using it. Therefore, you cannot imagine absolute nothingness. That which cannot be imagined cannot be proposed. Philosophically, then absolute nothingness is an impossibility. Scientifically, here's what they say. Quantum mechanical fluctuations in vacuum created the universe. By the laws of physics, nothingness is unstable. And we know that because the next statement there, nature abhors vacuum. In other words, whenever you have vacuum, it's, it's unstable. Nature wants to knock it off. That's true. The question really is, are we talking about a vacuum? Or are we talking about the void that was there before even nature was born? Those are two entirely different things. Because of this, what creates the instability of vacuum in nature? See, most of us think it is that emptiness of space that causes the instability. No, sir, no, madam. It is the molecules of air outside that is causing the instability. Furthermore, you cannot have a vacuum in space without a physical barrier. Are you with me? Only if you have a physical barrier can you have vacuum. So here's a flask, a glass flask. And we pull out all the air from that. And it is now vacuum inside there, very unstable. We can prove it because if you poke a hole in that flask, what will happen? Right? Because it's so unstable. But where would the energy that caused the instability come from? It came from the molecules of air outside and from the actual strength of the glass. Can we prove that? Most simply. Take this flask and put it into another flask which is bigger than this flask and now take out the air from both. Now we have vacuum in the smaller flask and vacuum in the bigger flask. Now let's poke a hole in the small flask and see what happens. What do you think will happen? Nothing. 
Why? Because there was no energy surrounding that little flask. It was still vacuum around it. Vacuum surrounded by vacuum is absolutely stable. Only vacuum surrounded by something is unstable. Vacuum surrounded by vacuum is what they said was absolutely nothingness. The void that was before the world was created was vacuum, surrounded by vacuum, surrounded by vacuum, surrounded by vacuum. It was absolutely, completely stable. In other words, if you start with nothing and, have, and don't do anything about the nothing, you'll end up with nothing. So absolute nothingness is scientifically untenable. And that's what we're going to see right now in mathematics. The atheistic proposal, nothing did nothing about nothing and produced everything. The theistic proposal says something did something about the nothing and produced the universe. Now Edgar Andrews says this about science. It may be represented as common sense wrapped in mathematics. In other words, you use a statement and try to make it into a mathematical equation. Because mathematical, uh, mathematics, numbers, are the hardest science we know. Alright? So let's take these two statements, the atheistic and the theistic, and make it into a mathematical equation. Here's what your equation is. Atheism says 0 plus 0 plus 0 is equal to 100. Nothing did nothing about nothing and produced 100. The theistic proposal is something did something about that nothing and got the 100. Which proposal has a chance? If you put some numbers to x and y, you have a chance of getting 100. 0 plus 0 plus 0 Absolute nothingness is mathematically worse than absurdity. So absolute nothing is physically impractical, philosophically impossible, scientifically untenable, and mathematically worse than absurdity. Sure, the difficulties of belief may be great, the absurdities of unbelief are greater. You have to pick your choice. Yes, it's difficult to believe, but if you don't, you're being absurd. So your choice. The last one. Statistical analysis, very specific. Chance is subjective, we use it every day. It's also a mathematical concept which is known as probability. There's a formula, you know, probability. Anybody who does scientific research knows that. You've got to have your probability, then your scientific research makes sense. If there is no probability studies, your research is not up to any par. In day-to-day -day life, this is just a throwing out a number. 10 to the power of 8 is 100 million. If an event we say in day-to-day -day life will occur 100 million times and has only one chance of not occurring, then we call that event a fact. If it, if, if it will occur only once and has 100 million chances of not occurring, then we say, hey, that's not possible. When it comes to scientific evaluation, the number goes up to 10 to the power of 15, one quadrillion. One quadrillion is where the scientists say that we will have to have our principles calculated to whenever we want to use that principle 
in making anything that has to do with life or limb, where there's danger of life, like the suspension bridges, like the planes. The principles that are used in those have to be calculated to the point of 10 to the power of 15 occurrences, only one chance of non-occurrence. Then it becomes a scientific principle that they can safely use. When it comes to a law, scientific law, then the number goes up to 10 to the power of 50. That is 1 followed by 50 zeros. Big number, right? But actually it's going over our heads. <laughs> you don't know what that number is like. Let me give you an example of what it might be like. Suppose I am testing the law of gravity once per second. Drop this pointer to my palm once per second, hoping for that one chance when it will not come down, it will just stay there or float away. I am looking for that one chance once per second. To do it 10 to the power of 18 times will take me 15 billion years. To do it just 10 to the power of 20 times will take me 1.5 trillion years. Why did I choose 15 billion years? Because that's the age of the universe. So to do it just 10 to the power of 20 times will take 100 times the age of the universe doing it once per second waiting for that one chance when it will stay there or float away. What have we described? We have described that 10 to the power of 50 is a huge number. Is that okay with us? 10 to the power of 50 is a huge number. That's why they call it a law. If you have settled it to once to the 10 to, 10 to the power of 50, it's a law. 10 to the power of 50 occurrence to one non-occurrence, it's a law. One occurrence to 10 to the power of 50 non-occurrence is absolutely statistically impossible. That's what it means. Sir Michael Denton, from New Zealand was one of the first to challenge Charles Darwin by statistics. He wanted to know what the chances were of 100 proteins getting together in one cell at the same time, by themselves. What are the chances? A combined probability of 1 is to 10 to the power of 2000. Remember, 10 to the power of 50 is a humongous number. And 10 to the power of 51 is 10 times bigger than 10 to the power of 50. So where have we gone to 10 to the power of 2000? Whew. Proteins are made up of amino acids. In the living cell, amino acids are levo and dextro also, if you look at their, their structure. You can have a right-sided link and a left-sided link. That's the meaning of levodex, right-handed, left-handed, right? We need 10,000 amino acids for those proteins. In the cell is also the nucleus in which there is a chromosome. Chromosomes are made up of nucleotides. We need 100,000 nucleotides. This is the minimum number for a living cell. 10,000 amino acids, every one of those 10,000 should be only left-handed amino acids. And every one of the right-handed nucleotides should be only right-handed nucleotides. You can't have any of them 
inside there other than left-handed amino acids or right-handed nucleotides. So, what are the chances that we could get 10,000 amino acids, left-handed all, and 100,000 nucleotides, all right-handed, together at one point at the same time to get that first cell? The chances are 10 to the power of 33,113. That 33,000 itself is a big number. <laughs> Leave alone the exponential part. Harold Morowitz decided he's going to do the same calculation of the whole cell, or whatever he thought was the constituents of the cell. Cell membrane, cell wall, cytoplasm, nucleus, mitochondria, Golgi, apparatus, everything. Do you know what his number was? 1 is to 10 to the power of 100 billion. None of you are honest. Remember what I said, if you're honest, you'll say, wow. Yeah, I knew you were impressed, but nobody said, wow. Come on, 10 to the power of 100 billion, not million. Wow. There. Got it. Finally. He said it for all of you. And this is just to bring them together. We still got to tell each one what to do. And then after telling them what to do, we got to somehow inject life. And then we've got to tell them exactly how to do it so that when it's split in two, both the parts are alive. Now you don't go and do it for yourself. And then become complex and more complex. And each form getting better and better until we find some complex organisms called the Homo sapiens who not only are alive, but they have such qualities as courage, appreciation of beauty, love, generosity. Hey, if the list is endless, what about the chances? Now here's some logic thrown to the numbers. If you have only two options, and we have only two options, is there a God in existence? Yes or no? That's the only two options. If A is possible, so is B. If A becomes improbable, B becomes probable. If A becomes impossible, B becomes fact. Say it again. When there are only two options, and one of them is right, then if A is possible, so is B. If A becomes improbable, B becomes probable. If A becomes impossible, B becomes fact. I'll show it to you just now with a simple Hey, how about a mathematical quiz? It's very easy, but don't answer until I ask you. Okay, don't answer. Here's a question. I'm going to give you the whole thing and then you answer. What is the square root of 25? Don't answer, because I'm going to give you two options. Only one of them is right. The first option is 33. 
The second option I won't even tell you. Which one will you choose? The first or the second? Why? Because the first is impossible. A square root is always less than the number. And when I say square root of 25 is 33, that makes it completely impossible. What I have demonstrated and what we can see glaringly is that you don't have to see that option. It is fact, even if you never set eyes on it, because the other is impossible. So if that first cell, it was impossible, statistically impossible, for the components of that first cell to come together, we have the only other option, somebody supervised it. We really have no option, because Sherlock Holmes said this. My dear Watson, how often have I said to you that when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. The difficulties of belief may be great, the absurdities of unbelief are greater. So the summary, column one, zero points. Remember what the column one was? For atheism. Column two, I gave 50 because we, there was some argument, but they were not really so good. Remember the question of pain and suffering? But there was also good uh, joys and pleasures too. So 50. Column number three, 75, because there were some good ones on the logic. Remember the logical thing? The logic of, say, order principle of science. By that you can point to a, a being there that is omniscient and, 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 and omnipresent. And column four, arguments against atheism. Statistical argument. As well as the idea of coming from nothing. I gave that 80. So now, when you look at that, if you add up the columns, column one and two is 50, columns three and four is 75 and 85 is 155. That, that's pretty big difference. But if you really look at what atheism is, it's called A1 and A and 4 are for atheism. If you, if column 1 minus column 4, which is the, which are the arguments against it, you land up with atheism at minus 80. Whereas for theism, you take the columns the arguments for and the arguments against and land up with 25. I mean, I'm being very generous on both sides. And if you look at one is on the negative and one's on the positive, the difference is more than 100. I mean, you can put any numbers you want, but whatever numbers you will put, my friends, if you're honest, you will have to land up with a negative on this side because the arguments for atheism are zero. So you will have to have a negative on this side. It will come to a positive on the other side. So with that, the conclusion really is based on science and evidence, reasonable, logical, rational thinking. The existence of the supernatural is valid, inevitable, inescapable, and therefore non-negotiable. With that, we'll close, and if there are any questions, I'll take them now. No questions?
Or maybe you're all dazed. <laughs> yes. 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 What do you think? Not sure. Yeah, yes. Two things. Okay, your question was this sounds very logical and reasonable. So, uh, did you write it up in a book? And was it critiqued ever? Good question. Um, why would you like it critiqued? You want to scrutinize it and make it more objective, so this is not objective enough. That's the point. Number two is, you remember when we started out, I said a person can choose what you want to believe as the truth of the matter, whether there is good evidence, whether there is no evidence, whether there is evidence to the contrary. So, our gauging is not dependent on somebody else for the simple that he will choose his own. <laughs> it's we who have to choose based on what we are faced with. That's number one. Number two. Uh, the other part of this question is, if If we look to critiquing, then we have to follow the principles of science. And the principle of science states that no matter how logical or reasonable something is, you can question it. So I will ex expect somebody to question this. But remember what we said as an inquirer, the moment somebody questions it, don't only argue the question, make a counter-proposal. In other words, if you want to question this, give me another proposal and let's do the same thing with your proposal as we did to this. Are you with me? Yes. So, yes, it will be critiqued. Sure, anybody can critique it. But once you critique something, it's not fair to just critique it. Give me your option and show that the other option is better than this. Then it will be a good inquiry. Of course, the reason why we are saying this is because, well, let me just go to the early ones. Here, humans will never be able to reach the ideal. We are limited in capacity. The highest we can attain may be described as our best, 
not the ultimate truth. And we are supposed to do our best, because if we don't do our best, we will do our second best. So the choice for you and me is not the ideal versus what we have. The choice between you for you and me is, do I, am I doing the best or am I doing my second best? There was a hand up out there. Uh, the question is, what about the agnosticism, the agnostic who says neither here nor there? Very good question because, uh, okay, let me answer it and then let's apply it to all of ourselves. When there is a clear-cut question to which there are only two options, to the question, is there a God in existence, there are only two answers, yes and no. Saying, I don't know, is not a third answer. It is a confession regarding the two answers there. Alright? Let me give you a, an example. And these two are mutually exclusive. It's like two jurisdictions. United States, India, where I come from. If you are living in the United States, you're not living in India. If you're living in India, you're not living in the United States. So they're mutually exclusive. In India, we drive on the left side of the road. In the United States, you drive on the right side of the road. What happens if I say I don't know which country I'm in? Does that give me the liberty to drive on the median? <laughs> what we are saying is, there is no such country as I don't know. Then what you will do is to decide whether you think you are in India and drive on the left side of the road, or think that you are in the United States and drive on the right side of the road, you cannot drive in the middle. Atheism is the most honest confession that anybody can make, but it is the most impracticable. In other words, an agnostic does not live like an agnostic. The agnostic at any given particular time lives like an atheist or like a theist. He never, you can't live like an agnostic. Like I said, it's not a third option. It's not another country called I don't know. You either are in India or in the United States. You're either a theist or an atheist. An agnostic, believe me, is the most honest answer. And, and truthfully, everyone in this room is actually an agnostic. A believer, a theist, is an agnostic who has chosen to believe that there is a God in existence because of whatever reason he wants to give. And an atheist is an agnostic who has chosen to believe that he does not want God to be in the picture at all for whatever reason he gives. We were saying we are all agnostics, but let us find a good reason to make a choice. 
but we are all agnostics. There's not a single of us who is born a believer or an unbeliever. And there's not a single one of us. You know, Kurt Gödel, the Austrian mathematician, he described in 1934 what is known as the incompleteness theorem. In any jurisdiction, you can make a single theorem. That means only one option. Only if you know everything in that jurisdiction. Only then can you make one theorem, meaning no other option, meaning that's the truth of the matter. As long as we don't know everything, there's always the question, you may be wrong. So, not, look my friend, you can't do anything about the truth of the matter. You can stand in your head the whole day, but if there is no God, there is just no God. Yeah, you can't do anything about it. You can bang your head against the wall. But you can't change the truth of the matter. Our job as human beings is to get the best possible information in our hands, use the most honest steps of logic and reasoning, and come to the pendulum swing, the weight of evidence. If the weight of evidence is on one side, we are duty-bound to take that side. That is the judicial process that God has placed in our brains. He has not given us all the information. He has just given us the weight of evidence. That's why we, are, we, we live by faith. And who lives by faith? Just the, the, just the believer? No. It is the atheist also lives by his faith. He believes. The question is, which belief is big compared to the evidence? And if you looked at what we have just said, then the theistic belief is based on much bigger evidence than the atheistic belief. Any questions? Yes, Good question. Yes, one more. Yeah? Where can I find the book? Uh, yes, I have written a book. In fact, it will be available tomorrow evening okay. after the session because some of the stuff that I've put on the screen here are in the book. Tomorrow morning when we are meeting at the, at the Damaso Amphitheater, uh, there will be one session from 9 to 10, which is the cyber school thing. And then from 10 to 11, I will speak again, because at that time I will describe something else. Once we understand that there could possibly be the supernatural in existence, then we should deduce that the supernatural has a personality, because I have a personality. The order principle of science demands that the cause be at least equal to the effect. So if I and you have personality, he has a personality. That means he's not a power. It's, it is a personality. If that's a personality, then how do we think we might know about that personality? There must be some information somewhere. One of the claims is that he has given us information in writing. So we're going to look at whether the writing have some, some uniqueness to it. Is, are, are the sacred writings unique literature? Is the Bible unique literature? We're not talking about the word of God. We're just saying, is it unique literature? Because if it is unique literature, then we might scratch our heads and say, hey, if it is unique, let's look and see if it could possibly be the information from there. Then in the evening, afternoon, four to six, we will talk about the founder. 
the book, whether it's unique literature, the founder, did he make unique claims that he could sustain so that 2,000 years later we could look at those claims and say they make good sense. All that's in the book and will be available after the, uh, the last session. Uh, I think there was one hand out there, yes. You, you're absolutely right. Like, but like I said, remember, remember, uh, you said that the agnostic can't drive at all. Yeah, that describes whom, you and me. Yes, that's the point. So we'll not point there. Most of these things will point back to us. There was another hand. Yes. No, you're not playing the devil's advocate. You're asking a tremendous question. In fact, you shouldn't have said devil's advocate. So you're asking, we don't know much. So we're going to look at this question of the Bible, and you're going to say that the evidences are here. How can we place emphasis on that rather than, hey, there might be something else that will come up, right, which will knock all our points away? Very good question. What shall we do about it? We shall become inquirers. We shall say this. If we do not want the Bible, what shall we want? And is that superior to this? What are the characteristics of the other proposal that is superior to this? Remember, it's on the, it's on the screen. The highest we can attain can be described as our best. That's all you can do. So if there are 10 million facts out, suppose, out there, and I know only five, then I will use five, because I have only five to make up my mind. If the sixth one comes and knocks off these five, then I'll wait for the sixth. Until the sixth one comes, I will do the five. I have no option. That's my best. Have I stated it in other words? When you look at anything today, we, have, we look for the best possible information and evidence. We are fully aware that if something else comes and knocks it off, we are ready for that as well. But until such time, give me the liberty to follow this, because that's all the, the best I have. And when you look carefully at the prospects, it will be extremely difficult, no matter how many other things you find, to go back in history and find anything that will match these claims that we will look into tomorrow and, and the afternoon. Be extremely difficult, if we are honest inquirers. There was another hand somewhere here. Yes, 
The comment here was that this would be a roundabout way, uh, a stronger way would be to start with the Bible because the Bible describes and establishes itself. And from there you look at science and see how science will, will establish the biblical truth. Uh, no, no argument and, uh, about that. That's the way you think. And we will give you all the respect and even the agreement that that is one way of looking at it. But you will not stand for a minute if you go to a secular university and say these words. For the simple reason that it becomes circular reasoning. If you say that the Bible explains the truth of the matter, then the Hindu will say the Rig Veda explains the truth of the matter. And the Muslim will say that the Quran explains the truth of the matter. And the Buddhist will say the Dhammapada explains the truth of the matter. We, we will have to give that same reasoning to anybody else if we are fair inquirers. If we are Christians, agreed. If we are Christians, we'll have to agree. But no Hindu sitting here from my country will ever agree to what you said. Impossible. No Muslim sitting here will ever agree to what you said. Because he will say, those, first of all, use the word scripture and word of God. He will say, who said the Bible is a scripture and word of God? It is the Quran that's the word of God. Therefore, to start with the Bible is circular reasoning and the Bible itself says no sir. You know where? If we read carefully Romans 1.20 it says the invisible attributes of God are understood by the things which he made not by reading the Bible. He understood no, it's very clear. The, the invisible attributes of God are understood by the things that are made, not by the words in the Bible. Not by the words in the Rig Veda, not in the words of the Quran, not in the words of the Dhammapada. If you go to the neutral scientific information that's in nature, Paul says that's where you understand the attributes of God. Now, when you look at the detailed attributes of God, you have to go to a written source. 
because our minds are not able to put what's in nature into the steps of doctrinal tenets of belief. We cannot do that. We need some written source. But the written source is not the answer regarding the written source. The written source says the strength of the written source is there, not here. That is the strength of what we as Christians must speak. That our strength comes from the truth of the matter, not from one book. When the truth of the matter points to the book, then we pick up the book. If we don't do this, then we will be able to pick up any book in the world. No. On what basis? There's no book like the Bible. Prophecy is one example. Another explains sin. There's no other book in the Bible that is inspired like the Bible. Because, you see, what you're leaving out yes. is a person must be a seeker of truth. Yes. And a seeker of truth in honesty, if he's honest, yes. most people aren't. Yes. They say they are, but yes. they're lying. Yes. If they are truly seeking for truth, yes. there's the Holy Spirit. And yes. the Holy Spirit is the one that impresses the mind with the truth yes. to see how nature and the Bible. So, may I ask you a question? Correlated. Yes, you can see in nature if you are seeking for truth. May I ask you a you question? Can see May I ask you a question? Were you here in the beginning when we set up the premise? Set up the what? When we set up the premise for our discussion, you were here? And you agreed to be a seeker? Did you agree with all of us that we were going to have this at the basis of the discussion tonight? Were you here at that point? Yeah. Then how can you say these words? How can you say these words when we agreed to I become the... Oh, you didn't agree? Oh, I see. Okay. Then, then we are not, like I said in the beginning, you know, if you don't agree on certain premises, then the atheist and the theist cannot even sit at the table. That's exactly what we are showing right now. If you speak these words to a Hindu, you're not going to talk. You'll have two monologues, not a dialogue. Yeah. You can never win an argument by arguing a point, by debating. It's only those who are seeking, truly seeking for truth will find it. Arguing will get you nowhere. You are, you are actually quite right. But remember, the early Christian church was very strong. They didn't go around telling what Jesus did for them. Do you know where their strength really was? The strength really was the Old Testament. They were able, the three champions of the, old, the, new, the, the early church, Paul, Stephen, and Apollos, their main approach to anyone they spoke, and they spoke mainly to the Jews first, was not to say, we are telling you, so listen. They said, what do you believe? You believe in the Old Testament? So do I. Now let's look at the Old Testament. 
and see where Jesus stands in regards to what you and I agree. You know what I'm trying to get at? First, you must come to a place where you and I agree. Only then can there be a dialogue. Otherwise, it'll be a monologue, two monologues going on. Well, it's time up for us to go. Have we made the point that if we don't come to a place where we are agreed on the premise or on the basis of our discussion, you can't have a discussion. And then, yeah, that is why we must come to the basis first. This is one of the bases. This is one of the bases. Yeah. Let's close with prayer. God, our Heavenly Father, the truth of all truth, teaches how to be humble and honest and calm and respectful for that is how you deal with everyone. When you give us information, teach us, Father, teach me how to deal with information that you keep sending in different ways so that our lives will be strong we will be sure in our minds that what we are speaking makes good sense because you are so sensible, Heavenly Father. It will make good reason to our hearts because you are so reasonable, Heavenly Father. And beyond the reason and the good sense, you have a heart of love that is so deep that it, it, it looks at each of our minds and it makes an approach that settles us. So teach us to be settled, that our destinies will be really settled with you and you alone. Thank you for the Sabbath, for the day that, of rest that it brings. Teach us how to lean on you, how to cast all our cares on you, and worship you during these hours, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.